If you have your Bible with you this morning, we are in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18, continuing our series through this book, Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 15, Genesis chapter 18, beginning our reading in verse 1, down to verse 15 in that chapter. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and, lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door, and bowed himself toward the ground, and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant." Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do, as thou hast said. And Abram hastened into the tent unto Sarah, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched the calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed I will return unto thee, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word this morning. Now up to this point in our journey through the life of Abraham as part of our series in Genesis, all of God's dealings with Abraham have been just that. They have been with him, not with his wife. At no point has God directly addressed Sarah. And to some degree, everything she knows concerning God's covenant has been given to her second hand. She has heard it from her husband. And yet with all, in many ways, she has proven to be a model wife. Notice, think about it, she left her home in Ur of the Chaldees to move all the way to Canaan land. She went with Abraham to Egypt. She even consented to his lie in order to protect him. Uh, she watched as the promises of God uh, seemed that the promises that God made to her seemed to be slipping away. And so with the best intentions, she gave him Hagar, her handmaid, 
in the hope that she could have a son through her. But now she's 90 years old. And whether Abraham had told her anything about his previous encounter with the Lord is really questionable. Certainly she seems to have given up all hope of ever having a son of her own. And like her husband, she thought her best chance and his best chance of seeing the promises of God fulfilled lay with Hagar's son Ishmael. And so we find in chapter 18 of Genesis that God makes a pastoral visit. You know, it's always interesting when you make pastoral visits. It's, uh, I always like to see how people respond, if I, especially if I show up at the door unexpected. Usually I get this response, what have I done? <laughs> or what's wrong? Well, it's not always that there's something wrong or that you've done anything. Sometimes, believe it or not, the pastor just calls because he cares. But uh, here God certainly calls because he cares. And the Lord appears unto Abraham. Now this pastoral visit came in the heat of the day. It came in the form of a Christophany. That is, the Lord Jesus appeared in the form of a man uh, before Abraham. And in fact, as we'll see, Abraham thought initially of all three visitors as being just men. But he was enjoying his siesta. And we find, first of all, uh, that Abraham received the Lord in verses 1 to 10. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord appeared unto Abraham in the plains of Mamre. Now, Abraham did, as I say, not at first realize it was the Lord. Uh, For the very next verse tells us that he looked up and saw three men. He looked and behold, there were three men who stood by him. Now, between chapters 18 and 19, it'll become very clear who these three men are, that they're not men at all, that one of them is the Lord and the two others are, in fact, angels. And that Abraham has something of an inkling uh, that all is not exactly right, that there is something peculiar about these men, is seen in his response to these visitors. Because although it was certainly customary uh, to be a good host to strangers, it seems that Abraham went beyond the normal Near Eastern hospitality and reacts in surprising ways. For a start, it was midday. It was time for a break. It was siesta time. And uh, no one worked in that area when the sun was at its highest. And so Abraham was sitting in the shade of his tent door, sitting beneath a a tree, evidently, enjoying the cool breeze coming his way, when all of a sudden, These three figures appear before him. And certainly that's how the scripture reads. That's the inference. One minute he's there and there's no one. And the next minute he looks up and behold, there are three men standing just beyond him. And notice what he did when he saw them. It says he ran to meet them from the tent door. Now, bear in mind, he's a hundred years old. It's not usual for a hundred-year-old man uh, to go running. But you find that Abraham is urgent throughout this entire uh, text. If you notice in verse 6, it says, And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah. And verse 7, And Abraham ran unto the herd. There was an urgency about him. There was a sense that something significant was happening. And 
notice too, not only does he run to greet them, but when he meets them, immediately he bowed himself toward the ground. And the word bowed there is the Hebrew word, the usual Hebrew word for worship. And it means literally to prostrate oneself. Now that's highly unusual that you would come out and you would lay flat before someone in the way that Abraham did. But that's what he did. He came out and he laid flat on his face before these visitors, sensing that there was something very special about them, that they were in some way messengers from God. At this point, unaware that it was God himself who was standing in a human form before him. Now, how could he have been so sensitive to their arrival? Well, notice where he is. He's in the plains of Mamre. And the word Mamre means strength. In other words, he was in a good place. He was in a place of strength. You know, it hadn't been very long, if you remember back to last Sunday morning's message, since God had affirmed his covenant with him and uh, told him explicitly that Sarah would bear him a son called Isaac. And now it's hard to imagine that Abraham didn't go back and share these things with his wife. And yet we find in the reading of this passage that it seems that uh, that she was not nearly as strong as he was, that her walk was not quite what his walk was. Sometimes we find that in marriages. You know, maybe you're in a marriage where your marriage partner is not a believer. That's a difficult place for a Christian to be. Or maybe your spouse is a believer, but they're not as strong in the faith as you are. Uh, they're showing signs of frailty and, and weakness. And then that's where Abraham was. He wasn't in an unequal yoke, but he was in a relationship where his wife was definitely the weaker vessel. And that's a tough place for a committed Christian to be because we want our loved ones to come with us on the journey and to share all the blessings of heaven that we are enjoying. Well, Abraham was spiritually strong at this point. He's on a high, but his wife is on a low. And uh, he's walking in fellowship with the Lord. He's expectant concerning God. He's expecting to hear from the Lord at any time. And we see that in his response to the heavenly visitors. So he petitions them to stay away. And he offers them a drink and he offers them some bread and some meat. And, and uh, he goes out and he chooses a calf personally and he oversees the carving of that uh, calf. And he prepares the table for his visitors. And so with the table set before them and the food prepared, Abraham waited upon these three guests, hand and food. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us this. It says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Have you ever thought about that as a possibility? Now, that's a New Testament verse. That's not an Old Testament passage. That's, a, that's given to you and I in the New Testament period. And, and so the Bible is saying that there's the possibility of entertaining an angel Unaware that you should always treat strangers uh, with, uh, with hospitality and be willing to entertain them. Uh, and the writer is telling us that we may even have our own heavenly encounters that we don't recognize as being heavenly encounters. That we ourselves may at some point in, uh, meet an angel. And remember, angels are sent to be ministering spirits to those who are the heirs of salvation. They're a very real presence in our lives. 
I remember a number of years ago preaching on this very subject, preaching on the matter of angels. And it was very interesting as I was standing at the door and seeing people off at the end of the service. A good number of people mentioned various experiences that they had had as Christians in which they were convinced that they had uh, met an angel or potentially met an angel. And some of their stories were very interesting where they were in some kind of trouble and, and a stranger appears out of nowhere as it were and helps them and ministered to them and got them to where they needed to be. Well, these three visitors sat down to eat and Abraham must have been rather startled by the conversation Opener. If you notice what they how they begin the conversation is begun with the words, "Where is Sarah, thy wife?" In verse nine. Now, can you imagine three strangers coming to your home, not having met you or your wife before, and then asking after your wife by name? That would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? You'd be thinking, "Well, how does how do they know my wife?" But what's even stranger here is the form of the name that, she, that they use. Remember, in the previous chapter, God had appeared to Abraham as El Shaddai, as the Almighty God, and had changed Sarai's name to Sarah. Now, if Abraham hadn't told Sarah about that previous encounter with God, it's unlikely he'd even told her very much about the name change, and uh, certainly he didn't have time to re-register her name and to tell the neighbors all about her new name, because this is happening just a few days or possibly a few weeks after that visit in chapter 17. And so, uh, so the question is, how do they know her name? And how do they know her new name? And Abraham senses that his spiritual instincts have been accurate. These were no ordinary men. So the Lord says to Abraham, where is Sarah thy wife? Not Sarai, but Sarah. Where is Sarah thy wife? And Abraham simply replies, behold, in the tent. He says, she's back there. Now remember, they are at the front of the tent, at the opening to the tent, underneath the shade of a tree, and there by the door. She's in the back of the tent, and between them there is a, there is a curtain that would have separated them, a compartment that she's in apart from, the, uh, apart from the men, and that would have been separated by a sheepskin. So there's quite a, a thick barrier uh, between her and the men. Now the Lord is about to reveal himself uh, to Abraham and to Sarah, and he says this in verse 10, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. Now, does that sound a little familiar to you? Look in verse 21 of chapter 17. He says, But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. It's a similar phrase. It's a similar kind of language. And it's, it becomes evident that indeed Abraham is dealing with a heavenly visitor. Uh, but notice that it says, Sarah heard it in the tent door uh, that was behind him. In verse 10, right at the end of the verse. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. In other words, Sarah was doing what all good wives do. She was eavesdropping. You know, wives do that, don't they? 
I know you women don't want to say amen, but you should try saying amen. You, women do. You know, if, if I get a phone call, you know the first question my wife asks me is, who was that? And the next question is, what did they want? She wants to know who it was and what was said. No matter who it was, no matter how mundane the call may have been, how unimportant the call may have been, she wants to know who it was and what was said. Well, here, here's, here's Sarah, and she's got her ear to the door. She knows that there's some special visitors here. She's been told to need bread. She knows there's a bit of a, a activity around the home, and so she's got her ear to the door. wonder who these guys are. wonder what they want. What have they come for? You know, the Bible cautions us against eavesdropping in case we hear things that we ought not. Ecclesiastes 7.21 says, Take no heed unto all the words that are spoken, lest I hear thy servant curse thee. You don't want to hear somebody say something about you that you'd rather not hear. And so the Bible says maybe you ought not to engage in eavesdropping. Well, notice Sarah's reaction to the Lord in verse 11. It says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Well, Sarah heard her name mentioned. You know, if you hear your name mentioned, what happens? Well, your ears prick up, don't they? And so her ears pricked up. She heard something about her. And what she heard took her by surprise as the Lord said, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. She shall have a son. And it seems to me that given this is some matter of bemusement to her, that this must be news to her. You know, that she's completely given up on the prospect of fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, of, of uh, being the one through whom God would keep his promises. And you know what? Uh, Abraham, it seems, had said nothing to Sarah about what was said in the previous chapter, that he hadn't conveyed that to her. He hadn't told her about his previous encounter with God. And you have to wonder why that was. Why wouldn't he come back and tell his wife all about it? Why wouldn't he tell her immediately that she's going to bear a son and God has promised this? Well, it may have been just one of those delicate subjects. You know, sometimes, you know, there are subjects that are a bit touchy and and you just as soon not talk about them because you know it's going to create aggravation or frustration or annoyance in the home. And perhaps Sarah had already given way to despondency. She already thought, well, there's no chance of me conceiving a child at this age. And she'd already settled on the fact that she was going to die childless. And so to bring up the idea that indeed she was going to have a son may have been a very touchy subject. It could have created an atmosphere in their home. It may indeed even have led to a heated argument in their home. Well, when Sarah heard the Lord's words, she laughed. Notice it says Sarah laughed. And I want you to notice this phrase, within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Now notice that she wasn't rude to her visitors. She didn't laugh out loud. She laughed within herself. 
Uh, she had a quiet chuckle within herself, but her laughter wasn't the laughter of faith that we saw in the previous chapter when Abraham laughed at the news of, of a son coming his way. Uh, rather, her laughter was the laughter of unbelief. It was the laughter of a scoffer. It was the laughter of doubt. It was the laughter of questioning. You see, the stranger's words in her mind simply weren't realistic. And so Sarah, uh, looking upon these circumstances, sees herself as waxed old. You know what that phrase literally means it means worn out she says this guy's gotta be kidding i'm gonna have a son look at me i'm 90 years old i'm worn out there's no chance of of me giving birth to a to a boy what hope was there for a 90 year old woman who felt totally worn out bearing a child in her aged body uh, you know she was in no fit shape for childbirth she wasn't no fit shape uh, for uh, con- for pregnancy let alone even conception you know in my mind i always often think of sarah uh, when she finally conceives as uh, going down to the clinic, you know, to the maternity clinic. Uh, and there she's sitting with all the young mothers. And she's 90 years old. And they're sitting there in 30-somethings. And uh, she talks to them about, you know, all those things that women talk about when they're, when they're pregnant. And they're probably su- surprised. I mean, that's just, of course, that's just a Western way of thinking about it. But, but you get the picture. It was an impossibility. It was a nonsense in her mind, so much so that she laughed. Now notice that even though she doubts this heavenly stranger's words, she still holds her husband in high regard. Notice she refers to him as my Lord. And she says, you know, am I, after I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. You know, Peter picks up on this. Go with me to 1 Peter for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. I think this is a a wonderful truth here and tremendously encouraging when you think about what is said here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be one by the conversation, by the uh, holy lifestyle of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Now watch this. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. You know the thing I find that is striking about that is that in the midst of her doubt, you know, here's a woman who's laughing inside. Here's a woman who is scoffing at God. Here's a woman who's questioning the word of God. Here's a woman who's in doubt of the very presence of God, in the very presence of God. And yet when we come to the New Testament and that particular moment in her life is referred to, her doubt is not referenced. Her scoffing is not referenced. Her laughter is not referenced. What is referenced is the fact that she refers to her husband as my Lord. And she is set up as an example 
example, as a model wife, she's set up in a favorable light before us to read in the New Testament. And I love that. I love that in the midst of her failure, in the midst of her questioning, in the midst of her doubt, the Spirit of God chooses to remember her one little point of faithfulness. Don't you love that? You know, God remembers the things we forget and forgets the things we remember. And you know, sometimes we focus on our failures and we remember our sins and we remember our weaknesses and we beat ourselves up because we're not all that we thought we should be or hoped to be before the Lord. But here's the thing, friends. You know, God remembers every act of faithfulness. And sometimes I fear we paint God as being a far more stern judge of us than he actually is. Now, that's not in any sense to excuse sin in our lives or indeed in her life. But rather, I want you to see that God is looking for the good in his people far more than the evil, that he's blessed by our little moments of faithfulness rather than the glaring and obvious failures of our lives. And he rewards us. Isn't that good news this morning? Isn't it good that God is looking upon your life and he's not looking to pick holes in you? He's looking at those moments when you do the right thing, when you do the faithful thing, when you do the godly thing. And he records those moments in his book. And he rewards according to his righteousness. Look in Psalm 130, if you will, in verse 3. Psalms 130 and and verse 3. A rhetorical question. Psalm 130 and verse 3. If thy Lord... Shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? If God remembered our sins, where would we be? If God is going to hold us to account for our sin. You see, here's the thing. You and I as believers, our sin is under the blood of Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. You'll never meet your sins again as a believer. God will reward you according to your works, but at no point is he going to judge you for your sin because he has judged Christ in our place. And so his focus is upon his goodness and his grace in our lives and and in the outworking of that grace and, and indeed upon those moments when we show ourselves true to him. Nevertheless, at this moment in time, God had to reveal to Sarah that she indeed was in doubt. And although later in Scripture he commends her for her faith and her faithfulness, here for the moment he must, on her journey, focus upon her doubts. And notice verse 13, the Lord's rebuke of Sarah. Sarah is rebuked by the Lord. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety be a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laugh not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Now think about this. Here she is with her ear to the tent 
curtain, eavesdropping in this conversation between the Lord and her husband. She hears the Lord say that she's going to bear a son. She has a good old chuckle to herself at the very thought of her conceiving the child. And then the Lord says, wherefore, why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh? Shall I have a surety bear a child? Why did she say, shall I have a surety bear a child which I'm old? Now here's the thing. No one heard her laugh. It wasn't like she was back there sniggering or guffawing. No one saw her laugh. She was behind a curtain. You couldn't see a smile on her face. You couldn't see a smirk on her face. You know, nobody could see her. Nobody could hear her. She thought everything that was going on in her heart was just that. It was going on in her heart. It was private to her. She was out of sight. Her laughter was within. But the Lord saw and the Lord heard. And he said, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, I of a surety, uh, shall, shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Now, this reminds me of that scripture which says, Whatsoever you've spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you've spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. You see, friends, God is privy to our every conversation. Even, even the unspoken conversations of our own hearts and minds, he is privy to. And he's entered into the thought processes of Sarah here. And I love this question. What a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, there's a question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I want you to understand that what the Lord was telling Sarah this day is there is no promise so hard that God cannot fulfill it. That was Sarah's need. Listen, if God has made you a promise and the word of God has declared a truth to you, then you need to hold tight to that truth and believe that God will keep his word. There's no prayer too hard that the Lord cannot answer it. No prayer. Don't you dare give up. Don't you dare give in. Don't you dare surrender to your flesh. Don't look down. You pray and you pray and you pray and you pray the thing through. There's no prayer that's so hard that God cannot answer it. There's no problem so hard that the Lord cannot solve it. I don't care what your problem is. If God can cause a 90-year-old woman to conceive, then I think he can do for you what he wills to be done for you. You see, Jesus said, with men some things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. And also I would say to you, when God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, uh, is anything impossible for him? Is anything beyond him? There's no promise too hard. There's no prayer too hard. There's no problem too hard. There's no place too hard. There's no place too hard for the Lord. Not your home. Your home is not too hard for the Lord. You may be living under a roof where it's difficult and where your faith is a matter of contention and where you're being picked on or bullied or or persecuted in some mild way. Uh, You may think to yourself, well, I'm struggling here. Listen, your home is not too hard for the Lord. The Lord can win your home to Christ. I remember when I pastored in Dublin, there was a dear brother there, a man who got saved, but before he got saved, he was very hard toward the gospel. His children had been saved in a children's club, and his wife had been saved 
following the conversion of the children. But he didn't want to know anything about the gospel. And uh, every time the pastor came, the pastor previous to me would come, he, he, he would pull up his little white, uh, little green van, the pastor had a little green van, and as soon as that little green van pulled up to the door, this man would run out the back and hide in the garden shed and say, tell him I'm not in. Tell him I'm not in. And he would stay in that shed as long as it took. And they thought he's never going to get to see him. You know, the kids began to uh, cotton on to this. And sometimes as a joke, they would say, here's the pastor. And he would run out the back and hide in the shed <laughs> for as long as it took. <laughs> they say, well, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult home. How are you ever going to win a man who's hiding in a shed, who won't face the gospel, who won't speak to anyone about Christ? You know, when I came to that church, we were, we were in the throes of doing a church uh, renovation. And I spent the first, I think about the first three or four months at least, doing nothing but painting and decorating in that church. And one day, this, his wife came to me and she, she says to me, uh, my husband says he'll help you, won't, won't you, Hugh? And she turned around to him. He was right there and she says, won't you, Hugh? And he was stuck. He wanted to say, I knew he wanted to say no. <laughs> but he said yes. And so I, I had to pick them up, brought them along to help with me in the, in the painting this particular day. And I was a little bit cunning. You know, the Bible says you've got to be as, uh, you know, as, as, uh, as wise as a serpent, as harmless as doves. And so I had an old tape recorder there, and I began to play Willie Mullen sermons. Put Pastor Willie Mullen on. He was preaching the gospel all day long while we were painting, you know. And I knew the whole time the guy was just listening to the gospel, but we were just painting. I didn't have to witness to him. Pastor Mullen was doing all the witnessing to him, and I'm just painting and chatting with him. And eventually he softened up a little bit, and one day he came out to a Christmas dinner with the church. And as uh, we were having our Christmas dinner, you know what a church Christmas dinners are like. They're, you know, you have, a, you have your meal and there's a few silly games and what have you. And uh, we're having our games and we're, we're having a fun time. And I noticed him leaving quietly and going out into the car park of the, uh, the place where we were holding this dinner. And I followed him out into the car park because I thought he was going out for a smoke, to be honest with you. And it was a cold night and I thought, well, I'll go out and, and keep him company and chat to him for a little bit. And so I went out, and he was just standing in the car park, shaking his head. Just shaking his head. I thought he was sick. I said, Hugh, what's the matter? Are you, are you unwell? He says, I can't believe him. I says, what can't you believe? He says, all those people, I can't believe it. I says, what do you mean? He says, they're all in there. He says, I don't understand it. He says, they're having a great time, and nobody's drinking. And nobody's drunk. And they're having the best time. I don't understand that. And so I said to him, you know, we don't need to drink. We don't need the drunkenness. We've got the Lord. We can have a good time without all that stuff. And so he started attending church on and off. And the following Easter Sunday, he gave his heart to Christ. Friends, there is no home that is too hard for Jesus. There's no school place. It's too hard for Jesus. If you're a young person and you're in education right now and, and your friends are giving you a hard time and maybe your teachers are giving you a hard time and you think this is a hostile environment to be a Christian in, and maybe it is, but you know what? There's no school that is too hard for the Lord. 
There's no workplace that's too hard for the Lord. There's no church that is too hard for the Lord. Listen, there's no village that is too hard for the Lord. My short tenure here as pastor, I've heard it said over and over again, oh, you know, Points Pass is a hard place. Well, good. That means the Lord might actually do something. That means means that God may actually go to work in this village. Oh, you don't understand. We've been here a hundred some years and, and we're telling you it's a hard place. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. Think God is sitting in his heaven, shaking at the knees every time we mention the word points pass. Oh, not that village. Any word but points pass. No. God's totally unmoved. We can see this village one for Christ and the surrounding areas. And there's no person too hard for the Lord. Don't give up on your loved ones. Don't give up on that friend of yours. Don't give up on that person you're witnessing to. Yes, they've rejected you, perhaps. Maybe they've said they don't want you to talk to them anymore. But don't give up. Stick at it. Jesus said men ought always to pray and and not to faint. He said don't give up. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. That's the question that he puts to her. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is no. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. Well, again, God gave his word speaking with Abraham. And he says this, At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And then we read in verse 15, Then Sarah denied. You see that? She said, I laugh not. And you see how that one sin leads to another sin. How one sin sets up a chain reaction of sins. She began with the sin of doubt, and now she's moved to the sin of deceit. And her sin is there to be seen. And, and, you know, we can perhaps sympathize with her to some degree because the Bible says that she sinned in this way because she was afraid. She now knew that she was dealing with the Lord. And just like our first parents, she tried to hide from his presence. To cover up the truth. But friends, the best thing we can do when we sin whatever our sin is, is to confess it and to forsake it, to come clean. Proverbs says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. God wasn't going to let Sarah away with her denial, nor indeed with her lie. He says in verse 15, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And although the text doesn't say so, Hebrews leads us to believe that this moment is an important moment in the life of Sarah, that in that second she surrendered herself to God's will for her life. Look in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. Notice verse 11. It says, Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed. She received strength. She was in a point of weakness. 
that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. She received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Why? Because she judged him faithful who had promised. She went from doubt and questioning to belief and to faith. Well, there's many lessons for us in this text this morning. First of all, like Abraham, every one of us needs to be in a place where God can meet with us and speak to us. How important it is that we are walking in communion with him, that we're anticipating his arrival, that we are looking for the Lord to minister to us. Then every one of us should realize that we are actually living in a spiritual world, that all around us are spirits, both good and evil, and that we should be aware of the possibility of the presence of angels in our lives. Thirdly, few things are as foolish as trying to cover up sin. God knows all about you, and he knows all about me. There's nothing we say, there's nothing we do, there's nothing we think, there's no conversation we hold, but that he knows it all together. So it's much better to make a clean break of things, to to come clean with God, to be honest with God, to seek his forgiveness, to seek his mercy, to seek his help when we fail. And finally, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing. Now, what is it that's troubling you this morning? If you come into church this morning and you're dragging a bag of trouble behind you, you're thinking, God, God can't help me. God can't be all that he said he would be to me. God's promises aren't going to hold good for me. What difference is there between you and Sarah? That's exactly where she was. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. So there is no trouble that you bring to this meeting in your heart that God cannot deal with in some way. Now my question is, what are you going to do? Sarah decided what she would do. She decided that she would trust in the faithfulness of God's promises and go on. I wonder this morning, will you lay hold upon God's promises and go on? May God bless these words and thoughts to your hearts this morning.